welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where we talk about movies. So let's talk about some movies. Yeah, and it's also February, so we're starting a new month and a new theme. Yeah, this month we're going to be going through a director's filmography. Which is new for the film club. It is. Usually we don't talk about directors as much. Usually it's film series or genres, things like that. Yeah. But wanted to, wanted to change things up. New year, new podcast, whole new look. And yeah, so we're going to talk about one of my personal favorite directors. I'm sure you're pretty fond of him as well. Yeah, I'm a fan of him as well. And if that wasn't a big hit enough and you did not look at the thumbnail, we're talking about Quentin Tarantino this month. This is February Tarantino month, and we're going to start off with his very first feature film, Reservoir Dogs. Great movie. Haven't seen it in a long time. Still fantastic. When was the last time you saw it? Ooh, maybe high school or junior high. So it's been a long time. I figure you'd have uh, seen this at least once or something in the last however many years. No, I think I saw it maybe once or twice the first time I watched it. And mm. then after that, it's just been this really long gap of not seeing it. Oh, that's weird. Granted, I feel like Reservoir Dogs is usually people's introduction to Tarantino. Mm -hmm. And then they just never go back to it. I know that's happened a lot to, to people I've talked to before. They watch Reservoir Dogs, then they go into Pulp Fiction, and then... They're like Kill Bill people or yeah. Glorious Bastards or Hateful Eight or whatever. Usually not many people go back to Reservoir Dogs, but personally, it's one of my favorites of his. Yeah, and this one, even though it was one of his earlier films, he had a lot of hard times kind of getting the funding to make this film. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, originally, he wanted to make this for like 30 grand with like a bunch mm -hmm. of his friends and make it basically a no-budget movie, yeah. and then I think the script got around to Harvey Keitel, and mm -hmm. he was like, well, you can put like a couple hundred grand in this and make this movie. And I think it's very smart, and it also shows where he was as a director at the time. You really needed one location and a couple of outside locations, but just to have the one main focal point where all the action happens. Have you ever heard the term bottle movie? No, uh, I haven't so, heard that term before. Yeah, um, Reservoir Dogs, to, to me, really quantifies as a, as a bottle film. It takes mm -hmm. place in, like, you know, a bottle. Yeah. You can look outside, but the whole movie takes place in this one singular location. Yeah. Um, another example would be, like, the film Cube. Mm -hmm. It takes place all in, like, the cube. Yeah. Or mo most haunted house movies are bottle movies. They only take place in the haunted house. Yeah. And Reservoir Dogs, I think, yeah, like you were saying, it's a really smart, clever movie, and it seems like a film that could be done as a stage play rather than a feature film, because it's so minimalistic. And it's also a local movie, too? Yeah, yeah. We get lots of, you know, oh yeah, we got Long Beach, we get drops of Torrance, so it's just like, it's a very <laughs> California movie. movie, so I was kind of like... The street where Steve Buscemi's running down, you know, with the gun and the diamonds. I was like, I'm like, is that near the New Beverly? It kind of looked it, like that area. It looks somewhere, like, in, like, the middle of... Burbank. I was gonna say bum, bum fucking nowhere L.A., but, yeah, it, <laughs> this movie definitely screams Southern California, L.A. It, it's a very, um, at-home kind of movie, but that's that, that's one aspect of, uh, of the film, right? Yeah, and, I mean... Not just location, but also style-wise. These guys are mostly in suits the entire time that we see them. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a whole thing. I guess, do you want to get started by talking about the the style of Tarantino in this film? 
Yeah, because it's very Tarantino, this movie. Yeah. I mean, granted, it being one of his earlier films. It's, uh, well, it's technically his first feature. He made one film before this, but it has been lost to time and Tarantino trying to destroy it. Yeah, so kind of goes back to, like, the John Carpenter days with Halloween where everyone had to bring their own clothing. Hey, we we don't really have a budget for this. Uh, We don't have a budget for cars, so if you can, bring your own cars. We can't afford the police, so just do everything very safe on the streets. It wasn't do it everything very safe. It's we're going to cut when the light screen so you don't have to stop traffic. Exactly. So it's just like this way no one gets hurt. But the black suits, I mean, that's just anytime someone says Reservoir Drugs, you think of the guys walking in their suits. It's the iconic imagery of the film, right? And it's so simplistic. It also screams, you know, this is a crime film. Because the opening sequence, I don't know if people back in 1992 when this movie came out because i think it premiered at like cans or something or sundance or, or something like that it premiered in one of those yeah. major film festivals i don't know if people knew what the movie was before they walked into the theater mm-hmm. you know they're, well, were they like is it a crime movie is it well, yeah. like a drama or because it didn't get a lot of promotion here in the states it was just kind of dropped and it really didn't do well when it came out but apparently in the uk it was box office hit. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, but in the opening sequence when they're around the table and they're talking, you know, about Madonna and Like mm-hmm. a Virgin, you you do get a sense of the, the vibe the movie's going on. Yeah. It's all these guys, they're all kind of gruff, rough around the edges. They're friendly to each other, but there's no, like, real camaraderie there. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's a really interesting thing because it sets the mood and the tone and you get the idea, okay, these guys are a crew, they're going to go do something probably really bad, and that's going to be the movie. And then it's genius because it cuts after the job they did. Yeah. And then the movie just plays out as, like, it plays out as a mystery because who's, who's the rat? Who ratted him out? Exactly. And it's a ticking clock because you have Tim Roth character mr orange bleeding out and is he gonna die and it's like my god how much blood can this man bleed out apparently lots yeah because it's like yeah yeah there's gonna be a doctor there waiting for you no doctor no one yeah he's gonna come soon and then you know mr white and mr pink break off and they're having a full-on conversation down the hall and it's just like is he okay is he still bleeding what are we doing <laughs> it that's the genius of this movie it sets this Kind of like lighthearted, oh, it's going to be like Ocean's Eleven heist flick. And then it just crashes into this real dark, real gritty, kind of sarcastic crime thriller. And it's just, it's a really well done transition. And then we also have to shoot back to the beginning at the diner, not tipping the waitress. This is a point of contention for you, if I remember right? It is. As a former server, just hearing, you know, well, I don't tip because I don't believe in it. You know, the government, this, that, and it's just like, bro, I bought you the food. I have to clean down that table. I got to do all this shit behind the scenes you don't know about. Just drop the buck. It seems okay to tip the waitress at the Denny's, but not okay to tip the guy at McDonald's. Big corporation. mm -mm, mm -mm. And Denny's is a big corporation, too. It is, but (laughs) I mean, man, making those, you know, Grand Slams, your favorites, that's a lot of food coming to the table. That's a lot of weight you got to lift back and forth. Of course, of course. But yeah, it is, but that's another thing. 
all that dialogue at the beginning, because I think people just remember, oh, it's all pop culture-y, and, mm-hmm. oh, you know, Tarantino's... The, the poster. The poster, Tarantino's writing all, mm-hmm. you know, ooh, it's flashy and all that stuff, but it's really character-revealing. Yeah. Because Steve Buscemi, we get, we know, okay, he's kind of a, he's against the group, he mm-hmm. don't tip, but he has, like, really developed reasons as to why. Yeah, he, he gives a reason why he doesn't do it, but you also don't see that he's kind of like, hey, I'm one of the boys, it's just, you know... I'm here because this is a payday. Yeah. I'm and, in and I'm out. Yeah, and then you have Mr. Brown, played by Tarantino himself, mm-hmm. who's just spewing this pop culture nonsense. He's just trying to be the center of attention. Yeah. And you have Mr. White over here, who's the take charge guy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Joe's looking, he's like, uh, Tony, Tony Chong, Tony this, and he just mm-hmm. takes the book and he's like, shut up, you're like, you're, you're annoying everybody at the table. Yeah. He's the take charge guy. And then you have Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth, who's... Who's the rat? As soon as somebody comes back, he's like, who didn't tip? He rats out Mr. Pink right away. It really is a thing where we develop little things about each character in the opening sequence. Mm -hmm. But that's not even... Do you want to talk about the actual characters in this movie? Sure, go ahead. You take the lead on the characters, because (laughs) do we have a group of characters? Oh, yes, we do. So I'll start top to bottom, and we'll talk about each of them and. I guess how they fit into the crew. Yeah. So we have Mr. White played by Harvey Keitel, which mm. I fucking love seeing Harvey Keitel show up and stuff. Yeah. Like, I loved him in The Taxi Driver, Last Nation of Christ, uh, fucking all those Scorsese movies he was in. Great. And how do you think he fits into the group? I think he fits perfectly. He seems like someone that's been in the business, but it's kind of retired. And they've brought him in to kind of train Mr. Orange, who's this new kind of kid who's formerly a dealer i'm doing you know air quotes because he is an undercover cop yeah so it's just he's really taking him under his wing and just feels so much responsibility when he gets shot and he's very sweet with him you know he he takes on kind of like a father role yeah over mr orange and it's like you could see in harvey Keitel's face just this concern and worry especially when mr orange tells him you know can you hold me and it's just like you know he, he gets in position and holds him and you're, you're gonna be okay you're gonna be all right so it's like you have this mobster, but really he's he's got a heart to him. Yeah, he he's he strikes me as that old school criminal, and he does have that paternal instinct yeah. going on. It's a very interesting and complex character because I would argue Mr. White, however I tell, is the main character yeah. of the film. I mean, it's an ensemble cast, but he's the one you know we're we're really, with him the most. We're with him the most. We're following him the most, and we really get the most into his character. That, and he also has a longer history with Joe than everybody else. Well, not everybody else. There's Mr. Blonde, who has a longer history. I mean, Mr. Blonde, played by Michael Madsen, he striked me as the bona fide career criminal psychopath. That, and kind of to go back to what we were talking about, pop culture with, you know, the suits, the poster, the scene with him, the torture scene. The ear scene. The ear scene. If you bring up you know, Reservoir Dogs, a lot of people are going to say, oh, the part with uh, Vic where he's dancing around to... Um, stuck in the middle stuck with Stuck in you. the middle with you. That's like one of those scenes in a movie that just kind of like pop, you know, same with Pulp Fiction when they dance. Yeah, th- that is the, probably the um, iconic scene or mm-hmm. the, the most remembered scene from yeah. this film. And people say, oh, it's so brutal. It's so, it's so bloody and blah, blah, blah. And I, we watched it. It's kind of tame. Well, I mean, Quote, unquote, you know, by today's standards. By today's standards, yes. It's a lot a lot tame, but in 92, that was probably just incredibly gruesome and horrific. 
I think it's a lot more to do with suggestion because we never seen cut the ear off, but no. it's all the. I think it's all that buildup. It's all the casualness, and Michael Madsen is given a fucking amazing performance. He is considering that he's very against violence, and it was just he was kind of like, I really don't want to do this scene. This is something that I don't believe in. And Tarantino's like, yeah, but it's for the movie, you know. We're we're not going to show like exactly when you cut it off. But I, I mean, I, did I die when he's like, you know, hello, hello into the ear? I'm like, yes. It's it's one of those things because I, I like how you say Michael Madsen, you know, very pacifist guy, real, mm-hmm. you know, nonviolent. But the uh, the detective character, um, uh, Detective Mash or whatever, yeah. that actor wanted to get in character, so we asked Michael Madsen can you like drive me to set in your trunk so I can just get into that mm-hmm. mindset? And he's like, yeah, sure. And Madsen took the initiative to play a prank on. I was like, I'm going to get into character too and drive through all these potholes, take the long way to set, stop at Taco Bell, get some food, and then we'll get to set. Exactly. So he was completely <laughs> ready for that role. Exactly. Both and of them. It, they they were. And, and it's a, it is probably the best scene in the movie. It is. He shows up, you know, he's... Sipping on his drink, and yeah, I got something in the trunk to show you guys. And that's his car. Yeah. Really good looking Coupe de Ville, I'll tell you that. No kidding. And after Michael Madsen, we should probably talk about America's favorite actor, Mr. Steve Buscemi. Yes. Mr. Pink himself. America's sweetheart. America's sweetheart. The professional. The paranoid, crazy man, Steve Buscemi. I love him in this movie. Yes. I think this is the first movie I ever saw him in. Maybe for me, too. I don't know. I mean, Steve Buscemi has such a big career. Yeah. It's like... Um, he's in Big Daddy. He's in Big Daddy, Happy Madison. He's in a lot of those Adam Sandler that's 90s why I, movies. I'm trying to think. I'm like, did I see him with Adam Sandler first before I saw him as a gangster? It's really weird because he, he was this character actor that was in all these movies. He was in a bunch of indie flicks. He was in all this stuff and then he started showing up in like con air yeah and then he started being like the character actor in all these triple a blockbuster movies and then he shows up on television series Mm and yeah and it's it's really interesting because i think people forget steve buscemi's not a meme he's actually a fantastic actor fantastic actor a former firefighter yeah everything i hear he's a great human being yeah so i mean he does such a great job and he really does play the paranoia perfectly. Because you feel it throughout the entire movie where he's just, I got a bad feeling about this. And, you know, as soon as they pay me my percentage, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. He, he's, all, he's stashing the diamonds. He's mm-hmm. the only one of the dogs to survive the entire film. Yeah. And even when he gets hit by a car, he keeps going. Picks up the bag and keeps going. It's, it's Steve Buscemi really carries that character. And um, speaking of people who are carrying, let's let's talk about Tarantino. Yes, Mr. Brown, who Mr. is Brown. carrying the opening dialogue. Mr. Brown, you may as well call me Mr. Shit. You're <laughs> Mr. Brown. Okay, all right. all right. I guess. I guess. So, Mr. Brown is the one we know probably the least about. Yeah. Well, it's him and Mr. Blue. Because well, I mean, Mr. Blue just is completely gone. Yeah, after he's the in... opening sequence, he's he's gone to the world. Yeah, I mean, he shows up in that other sequence when uh, Joe is telling everybody, okay, this is your name, that's your name, and then after that, gone. They're just like, oh yeah, he died. Yeah. <laughs> Which... <laughs> Which is like, what the fuck? Well, from what I was reading, apparently uh, the actor that plays Mr. Blue is... Uh, Eddie Bunker. Eddie Bunker. He was having a hard time remembering his lines, and they were just like reshooting the same scene with him over and over, and they're like, 
yeah, you know what? We're just going to cut this scene and just tell everybody, yeah, he died. He didn't make it. Really? Yeah. I heard he actually had like almost no lines in the in the original script, and they mm-hmm. ga- that's why they gave him Mr. Blue, because he had issues remembering lines or something such like that. But I thought he, he started off with, oh, we didn't have anything, and that's why Tarantino made the opening mm-hmm. scene, so he would... Eddie Bunker felt like he actually had lines of dialogue in the movie. Yeah. Well, from what I read, that's what I read, that he was just having such a hard time remembering his lines, and they just figured, you know what, we're just gonna scrap this scene altogether, and it's just easier to... Yeah, he didn't make it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I... I remembered that I remember Mr. Blue disappears from mm-hmm. the movie completely and I thought Tarantino's Mr. Brown disappeared too but then we have the, the him crash crashing scene. the car and yeah. all that stuff and hey Mr. Brown's a horrible criminal he had one job drive the car get away driver just get away exactly and he couldn't get away he crashed the car like right away well that and he also got shot in the head did he get shot in the head was that what it was that was yeah he got shot in the head and I guess he was able to drive because he was in shock, so it was just, and, he crashed, and then it was just kind of like, once he was trying to get the car to disconnect from the other car, I guess, maybe just from the bleeding or the damage that a bullet to the brain would take, I didn't, it took him. I thought he, I thought they turned the corner, he crashed the car, and he smashed his head into the steering wheel. No. I thought that's what happened. No, because um, when they get to the, the safe house, basically, and Mr. White's talking to Mr. Pink, and he's like, well, what happened? And they're talking about how... Vic is, you know, just kind of shooting everywhere, you know, guns blazing, and Mr. Brown takes a bullet to the head, Mr. Blue dies, and then, like, he talks about when Mr. Orange gets shot, when they're together, so, you know, right off the bat, they talk about, you know, Mr. Brown taking a bullet to the head, and I thought, oh, immediately, he's dead. Mm. But no, we see him driving, so it must have been a thing where... I wonder if that's a continuity error? Like, they, like, he was supposed to have his, you know, oh, shot in the head or whatever, and Mr. Blue was supposed to be in the... In, behind the wheel, and then they had to switch it or something, because... Possibly. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'd have to watch the scene again to see maybe someone of the cops shot through a window or the windshield and it kind of slowed the bullet. I don't I don't know, because it, it's a thing where it's a... It's cut pretty quickly. Yeah. Crash the car, he's trying to get away, and then it cuts to him, and he's just There's, blood all over his face. And he's just slowly starting to go. Yeah, so I, I honestly... I always thought he they crashed... He slammed his head into the steering wheel and he's like, you know, broke something or fractured his skull and he's just kind of no, freaking out. Mr. White says... Because uh, these White 90s and Mr. cars do yeah. not have airbags. No, they don't. But Mr. White and Mr. Pink both confirm that he got shot in the head. Because that's when they're having that conversation of, no, it happened this way. And then Mr. Pink's, no, really, you didn't see when blah, blah, blah happened. And all the cops came rushing in from one side, so... Which, which is another interesting thing about the movie. We never see the heist. No. Which I think is kind of genius. Yeah. One, it saves a shit ton of money, but it's also intriguing because us as the audience has to build that sequence in our mind. And All right, what happened? Okay, we kind of getting a little tidbits from every dog that's still alive that's telling us what's going on. Yeah, we get to paint that scene ourselves and just imagine a sea of cops just swimming right into the store and them trying to get out and just guns blazing and cars going in every other direction because... I assumed they were leaving in multiple cars. I didn't think that they were leaving running or stealing cars. Yeah, because... It just turned into all hell breaking loose. That, and that's exactly it. It says, that's exactly what Mr. Pink said. Alarm goes off, cops show up, and it, boom! We're, all, the, we're blowing people away, and we're trying to get out of there. And that, and that leads to the whole thing where 
wait, how did Mr. Blonde get out? And then mm-hmm. you start thinking, is Mr. Blonde the rat? And then, well, no, he's not the rat after what he's doing to the to the cop. And then we find out that Mr. Orange is the rat. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about Mr. Orange, because his reveal takes up probably the last third of the movie. Yeah, it's it really kind of cements the story of how he got involved in this and how much work it took him to basically become Mr. Orange and get the guys to kind of believe that he's just one of the guys. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because Mr. Mr. Orange, he's the undercover cop and he has this associate which is kind of like an acting coach. Yeah, it's I think it's maybe like one of his bosses at the station. Yeah, I think he's the undercover contact or some such. But it's it's really interesting because I wonder if Tarantino's commentating on, you know, filmmaking and, and all that stuff because Tim Roth, he's, you know, the the actor, you know, he's Mr. Orange, he's the undercover cop. And when he's going through the commode story yeah. and he's up on, you know, the dock uh, uh, loading bay or whatever, it looks like a stage. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I wonder if it's like a commentary on, you know, the the falseness of the movie. It's trying to like to distance mean, us from what's going that on. That stage also reminded me of uh, Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio. So I'm yeah, wondering it looks, if it ba- looks like some Venice Beach graffiti. So I'm wondering if Baz Luhrmann kind of took from Reservoir Dogs because I mean, yeah, it totally looks like he's giving a performance, and that's like his last performance to. Uh, to his boss that's coaching him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you finally have it. And then we see it in the next scene where he's talking to Joe and um, Joe's oh, son. Uh, uh, nice guy, Eddie. Nice guy, Eddie. And it's just, you know, he's completely, you know, yeah. And, you know, there's four sheriff's deputies and I'm, you know, I have got the bag of weed and what am I going to do? And the dog's barking at me and the dog knows that I've got something and I've just got to play it cool. The the commode story is so fun and it's so good. I love when he's telling the story and it reverts back to him in the bathroom and he's telling the story to the cops. Oh, yeah. And the cops are just staring back at him and he's just going on and on about this story. It It's one of those things where in the movie, you know, he's telling the story to his boss, uh, Holdaway. And then he's telling it, and then it cuts to him telling it to Joe and Ice Getty. And then it cuts to him in the story. And then it cuts to him telling the story, like, to the cops. But mm-hmm. it's really, he's telling it to himself. And halfway through, I'm, I kind of forget, wait, oh yeah, this is a made-up story. Because yeah. Tim Roth is so good delivering he, this dialogue. He's very convincing. And I love that when he's talking to his boss, he's like, yeah, and you know, I met Joe, and he's like, you know, the Fantastic Four. And he's like, yeah, I vaguely remember the Fantastic Four. He's like, the Invisible Woman, he goes, no, The Thing. And then I was like, yeah, Joe kind of looks like The Thing. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Kind of kind of looks like, um, oh God, Michael Chiklis. Was that the guy from the, the early 2000s thing? Like, yeah. Like, Fantastic Four movie? He looks like an aged Michael Chiklis that's been in the sun too long. And I mean, how cool, you know, he's got hardly anything in his apartment but a Silver Surfer poster. Yeah, actually, I think the apartment was just the upstairs of that warehouse they were filming in. And they just, you know, dressed it up to look like a set. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, Tim Roth is so good in this movie. He is, and it's interesting to see him kind of shift from cop to, you know, uh, a monster. criminal. Yeah. yeah. It really it really does sell. He's playing two roles in this movie, the, the, the cop and the criminal, and it, it works so well. And then we have, you know, that joke at the cops where they're watching him get into the car with uh, Mr. White. And he's like, man, you know, the, the stone's on him to get in that car and pretend to be one of the mobsters. Oh, do you want the jelly filled? 
No, okay. And that's just like... Boo just yeah. loves every time they bring up donuts in movies. I mean, who doesn't love donuts? This is true. This is true. Uh, but um, after that, that's that's the dogs, right? That's the Reservoir Dogs. Then that's We the have dogs. Joe and Nice Guy Eddie, but they're not really in the movie all that much. Joe's the one who, who's the mastermind, puts everything together. Yeah. And Nice Guy Eddie's the, the kid hanger-on of the group. Yeah, you know, he's friends with Vic, and of course, his dad's Joe. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know if it was just me, was it bothering you when he kept calling him Daddy? <laughs> he was just, you know, and then Daddy said this, and he's telling these stories, and I was just like, dude, you're like in your 30s or 40s. Unironically, I, I found this out, and obviously this is a total tangent, but I've always thought it was weird when it's like grown anybody mm-hmm. calls their father Daddy. But I found out that Martin Luther King Jr. was one of those people who yeah. called his dad daddy until, like, basically his entire life. Yeah, there's people that call their parents, like, mommy and daddy. I don't get it. I mean, it doesn't work for me. It's like, I think I stopped calling my parents that at a very, very young age. <laughs> I, I was, like, five. Like, as yeah. soon as I made it into, like, elementary school, that was out the door. It was but, mom and dad. But I just thought it was so weird, you know, because they're mobsters and they're this movie. And it's like, I've never heard them, you know refer to their dad as like daddy you know like pop or um dad or you know it's like godfather boss boss yeah so it's like well well, that's that's another thing we can we can jump into the dialogue in the the movie right because this is the first time people heard tarantino dialogue yeah and it's become kind of a a staple Mm -hmm. since because it's really unique and it's kind of hard to Hard to replicate, right? Because, I mean, that first, you know, opening in the diner, he's talking for a good, what, like, five minutes about Like a Virgin? Yeah. And it's really engaging to listen to. And even how the character, all the characters interact when they're driving someplace and they're talking about, like, Foxy Brown or coffee or something. The the cop show, you know, well, who was the actress? No, it wasn't that person. It was really this woman. No, she was on another show. Well, then who was the person in the movie? It's like, I don't fucking know. I just know it wasn't her. Well, now the rest of my life is ruined because I'm never going to know who was the woman that played this. Yeah, it's very real. It doesn't feel like it's scripted. It feels like people are actually conversing with each other. Yeah, and I think that's a thing. It's overly naturalistic, but it has a point. Yeah. Because I've, I've seen people try and replicate this style of dialogue where, oh, I'll have everybody and they're going to sit around, talk like pop culture nonsense, yada yada. Yeah. Kind of like the, the Kevin Smith thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're in Mallrats or Clark and they're just talking about Star Wars or some pop culture randomness, yeah. right? And people are like, well, I'll just do that in my movie. And then they do and it's like, well, it doesn't really work because it doesn't have a have a point. Even in, in this, when they're talking about, oh, who was the who's the cop in this? If you think about it, when uh, Tim Ross' character, Mr. Orange, says, no, it wasn't her. Well, who was it? It's like, I don't I don't know. It's a thing where he points out they're, they're wrong and then withholds the information mm-hmm. as to who it really is. Like, he's actually withholding information from them. Yeah. And with the whole, like, a virgin thing at the beginning, it's things where, oh, it's not, this isn't really what it's about. It's about something else. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the movie is. It's like, oh, you think it's a heist movie? It's not really a heist movie. It's it's a drama. Yeah. And it's it's a really interesting use of dialogue in this. You know, it uses the pop culture stuff to bring you in, but there's that thing underneath it that just makes the movie work so much more. Yeah. It's the onstage play that we get. Yeah. Because it is very much a play, and 
it's really entertaining. It's, I love when we break off and we just see, you know, glimpses of the past and how we got to this very moment. Yeah, that frag that fragmented um uh non-chronological timeline in the movie. Yeah, you know, we see that, you know, Vic is ready to kill this cop, but we see he just got out of prison, he did four years and he didn't rat out Joe. And nice guy Eddie was like, you know, Vic, you know, is a great man and we gotta take care of him the way he took care of us, and it's just Vic doesn't make it. No. And Actually, that's another thing, the the way the movie's structured. Did you find it weird watching the movie like this, where it fla- where it flashes forward and backward all over the place? No, I I think it worked in this movie. Well, no, I I know it works in the movie. I just I'm just asking, you know, seeing this again for a long time, did you, it strike you as weird at all? No, it didn't feel weird. Alright, because I know that a lot of people gave Tarantino shit when the movie came out, and he's yeah. like, if I wrote this as a book, you wouldn't even have fucking noticed. It's like, there's plenty of books and movies where there's flashbacks and we're just kind of, you know, figuring out what happened to get us to this very moment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's smart, it's cost-effective too, because we get little glimpses. It's not like full-on scenes that we get and then, boom, we're back to the safe house. And it makes, and it does make the safe house stuff not feel so long and drawn-out scenes, yeah. because we have breaks in between where, oh, we tell a little bit of this story and a little bit of that story. We reveal a little bit of this character and then back to the warehouse. Yeah, because it's a very fast sequence when Mr. Brown crashes and then he dies. Mm. And then we see Mr. White just obliterate the cop car. And just Mr. Orange's look on his face like... Oh, oh this got real. No, it's just like, those are my co-workers and I can't help them because I've got to keep, you know, who I am in check. Do you think Mr. Orange could have gotten gotten away? Definitely. He, I mean, while he, you know, while Mr. White's shooting up the car, he definitely could have broke free, or he could have shot Mr. White in the back of the head and then took off. But I, I was even thinking when they were like one, like walking away, like when they're like, "Oh, you know, we got we got to get back to the safe house." Yeah. Honestly, Mr. Orange probably could have been like, "Look, we'll we'll split up, and I'll meet you there." You know, yeah. it's, it'll be harder to catch both of us. So. It's it's a really just interesting thing, you know, how long is he I think he was, was just in shock. You think so? Yeah, cuz I mean, you see it on his face when the you just see the blood flying in the the car and you know, he empties both clips and it's just like he's just like in a daze, like did that really just happen in front of my face? So I think maybe that's why he doesn't try to split or do anything. Mm-hmm. And then I mean, like right after that, we see how he gets shot. Yeah, his uh, hairdresser shot him in the stomach, right? Was that was that who that was, or was no, it his it, acting coach? No, it was, I don't know if it was his or somebody else, it was their dialect coach. Oh, I, it must have been Tim Roth's dialect coach, because mm-hmm. Tim Roth is a British actor? Oh, okay, so yeah. Yeah, I which think... is another thing, it's really weird, because he's he's got like three accents in this movie. Yeah. And I'm like, but bro, you, you ain't even from here. <laughs> he's really good in this he's, movie. He's committed. Very committed. You know they wanted James Wood for his role? Yeah. yeah. And that uh, James Wood's uh, agent was telling Tarantino, no, no, he doesn't want it. doesn't matter what the price is. And then Tarantino finally met James Wood. He was like, yeah, so you know, I'm sorry we couldn't work together. And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, I wanted you to be in Reservoir Dogs. And he's like, my agent never told me and fired him. And it was just like, but Tarantino was like, you know what? It's like, he did a really good job as Mr. Orange, so he's like, I can't really see anyone else being him now. Yeah, it's it's a really good performance. I don't know 
what Tim Roth was doing before Reservoir Dogs, to be honest. Me either. I mean, but amazing, amazing work. And he shows up again in uh, Pulp Fiction, his yeah. Tarantino's next movie. And man, it's it is such a good film. There's not really a there's not a bad performance out of any of the actors, right? No, it's very real, mm-hmm. and it's just like it seems simple. That, you know, okay, we're gonna break in, we're gonna take everything. Um, if someone acts up, you know, gun to the nose, butt of the gun to the nose to you know scare everybody. <laughs> you, you loved Hytel when he started doing the whole, you know, this is how we're gonna do it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like he was. Um, like giving the notes to a dance, you know. Okay, we move in. We do this. We do that. Uh, it, they're he, not going to fight back because they're secure. They're um, insured for all the diamonds that are there. He's directing a film. Yeah, he's directing, and then like life, nothing goes to plan. Okay, okay. I I got this. I got this thing. So Tarantino, he's been accused of being a lot more about style over substance. Mm-hmm. You know. You know, oh, there's not a lot of theme. It's just, you know, flashy camera work, cool dialogue, and, you know, girls with guns. Or samurai swords. Yeah. But is there a deeper thing to this movie? Because thinking about it, we have Tim Roth, who is blatantly doing a performance, right? Yeah. He's like, he's does like basically he's, a stage reading and he's acting. He's doing the performance of his life because he is lying on the floor, dying. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then we have Harvey Keitel's character, Mr. White. Who is kind of directing. It's like, once we get in here, this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. This is we're going to move. This is everybody's role. And Joe put it together, kind of like a Hollywood producer. Mm-hmm. Is this movie kind of like a a metaphor for f- basically putting a film together? Yeah. Do you, yeah, think, do you I, think you can read that in there? Yeah, I mean, now that you say it, I, I see it more. But yeah, there's a lot of depth to this movie. It does feel like a completed film, you know, from start to finish. Yeah. It's like, you know, okay, we're, we're starting the film, and at the very end, okay, cut, end of picture, but it's just, I don't know, there's something special about the movie. Mm. Is, is there anything you, you read in a little bit deeper while, while watching it? No, it was more just kind of the relationships with some of the characters that was really getting me, because you would think seeing Mr. White and Mr. Orange when Mr. Orange is in the back of the car bleeding to death, you'd think they'd known each other forever. I, just, I love the, just say you're going to be okay. Say the mm-hmm, fucking words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she killed me. She killed me. It's just, you know. Shut up. Say the fucking <laughs> words. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. You know, you think, oh, they, they've been friends for a while or they've worked together and it's just, no, they just met. And it's kind of like they've grown a bond very mm-hmm. fast, you know, with the short time that they've had, you know, surveilling the place and Harvey Keitel giving the direction is like, all right, well, now let's go get a taco. And it's just like, it's very kind of like their own buddy cop movie, even though one's not a cop one's not a cop, and the other one is. And it's just that that's another that's another thing, you know, when he's like, you know, uh, um, say it's going to be OK, say the fucking words. It's he's literally directing him to say his fucking yeah. lines. And man, man, this movie is good. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good movie. Um, I like seeing the different sides of Mr. Orange because we get. You know, him in full character. Yeah, we actually know the most about him. We know the most about him, but also seeing that he attempts to save the deputy's life when um, Mr. Blonde covers him in gasoline and he's about to light him on fire. And he just, you know, he steps in and empties the clip in him. And it's just, I don't think he could stay in character any longer. It was just, he broke 
especially when the cops, you know, I've got a child at home, I've got this, and he was just like, nope, that's it, that's enough. That that's when the uh, the the runaway actor starts abusing the crew, and then somebody mm-hmm. has to break to get him to back off. Yeah, and then he, you know, he's like, I'm here, I'm undercover, and you know, once Joe shows up, then everyone's gonna come, and he's just like, why aren't you calling? And he's just like, we have to have the one person here. So that kind of goes with, you know, this is a performance where it's like, we can't, you know, jump to this scene next because we need this key player to enter the scene. And then all the action can happen. That's like a really interesting thing, because I don't know if I've ever um, consciously thought of the film like that. Mm Because I know people say like um, Inception, the the Christopher Nolan film, Mm -hmm. oh, it's all just a metaphor for filmmaking and how people get their ideas and all these other things. But Reservoir Dogs really... Looking at it as a whole um, meta narrative about like filmmaking, you know, you get your you cast your actors, you put them in the performance. The performance doesn't go as planned, and now it's all all these things. And it's a very, very interesting film in that sort of like metatextual viewpoint. You also cast actors that don't know each other, and some of them build bonds, which we have with Mr. White and Mr. Orange. Yeah, and it just really makes things feel like you know this could be happening in real time. Yeah, the the movie is very clever, and it is really well-paced. And also, like you were saying, the relationship stuff in it, you can definitely read a, a paternal, um, like, mm-hmm. theme in the film. Yeah. There is there is a thing that happens in a few of Tarantino's films where an older figure and a, will, like, you know, take somebody under their wing, yeah. and it's kind of this, like, father-son style mm-hmm. relationship, or, like, a mutual respect, what have you. Yeah. And it's just, this movie is really good. This is a great film frame to start out on. Yeah, I mean, a really strong film to start out on. Because, you know, while it didn't do well here, did well in Europe. And then here, it's huge amongst the, the film community. Yeah, yeah. I, I When I went to film school, everybody talked about uh, Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. He was very popular in the uh, nerdy film club communities. Yeah, so... Great director, great film. What do you feel about the ending? You mean that uber bleak ending where everyone fucking dies? Everyone dies. We get... Like the curtain calls, the music plays us out. We get the standoff from The Office. You've watched way too much of The Office. I'm sorry, that's the first thing I thought of. And then right after I thought of the Spider-Man meme where all three Spider-Mans are pointing at each other. (laughs) So I was just like, yes, meme's coming to life. But, but... Yes. Yeah, we we have all of them go down. Yeah, and honestly, I think it is with how all the characters were and how they were set up and how things play out because it really does feel like the narrative's unfolding, yeah. right? It feels like that is the only way this movie could have ended. Yeah, and Mister Pink being the last one alive is actually within his character, right? Because he's yeah. super paranoid; he doesn't trust anybody. He's like, I, I'm going to make sure I'm in the most advantageous position. I'm going to hide. You know, you guys can shoot it out. I'm going to be the fuck over here. Well, yeah, that's also a point that Mr. White even brings up. Because he's like, you know, well, I tried to get me and Mr. Orange out. He's like, well, where was you? And he was just like, you know, I saw my way out. I shot my way through. And that was it. I didn't look back. So it's like he wasn't like a team player. It's like we went in as a team, but... But, I'm gonna watch my back. Yeah, and it's one of those things. He was the professional, and it paid off for him. Yeah, and it's just, 
man, Steve Buscemi's really good in this movie. Everybody's really good in this movie. I'm happy this about this movie. This movie is, is a good movie. And then I love that... And the that, ending is, is great. Sorry. Yeah, you start to hear the sirens closing in on the building. And Mr. Orange can't keep that secret anymore from his dear old dad. Yeah, Mr. White, you know, crawls, you know, to him so that basically they could die together because cops are coming, you know, you're not getting out of this alive. And it was this thing where I read about it because... When I watched it, and he confesses to Mr. White that he's a cop, uh, I saw that a lot of people were upset about that, you know. He had to wait like 60 seconds, and then they could have died, and he could have kept the secret, or the cops would have came in and shot Mr. White, and he would have been good. But I was like, no, he did, you know, the honorable thing. It's like, this guy had, you know, protected him, and kept him safe, and got him, you know, back to the safe house. And it was just like, I owe you this. You told me your name. You took care of me. The the one time that he reciprocates his trust, he gets punished for it. And he even tells him, you know, do what you gotta do. And It's fucking bleak. Well, it's, it's bleak, but... It's like the best way the movie could end it, right? Yeah, because, I mean, the credits roll, and I was just like, I'd forgotten the ending. So I was just like, <laughs> what? I'm like, that's it? It's over? We got, I was like, the fuck is this? I was like, how? I, I gotta know what happened. But it's just like... It's like, you gotta piece it together. Everybody died. Yeah. So, it's such a good movie. But, you know, that that's Reservoir Dogs. That is. But before we, we go on, what are the Tarantino-isms of this movie? Because I, I I already see, like, you know, the Tarantino dialogue. Yeah. That's all over this movie. We're gonna see that come up more. Yeah. Anything else in this you think is gonna come up a lot more? Music. Oh, yeah. The needle drop of, like, that 60s, 70s music. 60s, 70s music. No score. It's a lot of just turn on the radio and we're listening to the song that the person's listening to the song. Yeah. Those two, uh, we're going to see a lot of those coming up. And dance. Because there's usually some form of dance in his movies. Yeah. I know I know. for this one, it's, you know, the, the Vic Vague. He's doing yeah. his little, little stuck jig. Stuck in the middle with stuck you. Stuck in the middle with you. And it comes up in... Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, does it come up in, in all of his movies, or just a few, or just those three? Well, our next movie I haven't seen, so I'm not sure if it does. That's true. Now, the next movie we're going to watch, because we started with his first film. Yes. And we're going to go to the least successful film in his catalog. And this is objectively his least successful film. Worst critically, worst financially. Mm -hmm. And that is Death Proof. And you might be wondering, why are we going to watch his least successful movie? Because we've never seen it, and I'm kind of interested, to be honest. Yeah, so it's going to be brand new to us. We'll see what Tarantino-isms we pick up from that movie. Yes. And also, it's going to be kind of an interesting watch. It has Kurt Russell in it. Your it, favorite. I oh, love man. me some Kurt Russell. That man makes every movie better he shows up in. And also, it's a movie he made under that Grindhouse um, banner with Robert Rodriguez, who did mm -hmm. Planet Terror. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see... Tarantino making a love letter flick to a genre of movies that honestly were kind of bad to begin with, but I'm I'm kind of excited to watch it. Me too. I mean, Tarantino movies are great, but when you've never seen one and seeing it for the first time and we get to review it, I'm pumped. Me too, me too. But Boo, where can they go to find that? If you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, you can go to our YouTube channel, In The Frame. That's In The Frame on YouTube. Uh, fun place to go. You can find this podcast as well as our other podcast, The Film Odyssey Podcast. 
uh subscribe like leave a comment and yeah any last words boo we'll see you next week at the film club have a good week everybody